Hello, everyone. Good morning. All right. Thank you. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> Yesterday was my birthday. So thank you, guys. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yes, um, let, let's start out. Um, so today we'll be in Psalm 90. The title of the sermon is, Oh God, Our Help and Helper. If you don't have Bibles, please look to the ushers that are coming down the line and please get one. Um, if you don't have one, please keep it. Or if you know someone that needs one, please um, keep it and give it to them. So again, we'll be in Psalm 90. My name is Tolu. I've been going to Mercy for about five years, a little over five years. So if I don't know you, I think I know everyone. But if I don't, <laughs> I'd love to say hello. Um, we'll be in Psalm 90. Psalm 90, we'll go through the entire psalm. Okay, so let, let's start. Well, I guess before I read, or actually, let's pray. Oof, sorry, let's pray. Father, thank you so much. You are God. We are your people. Even though we are not deserving of your love, but you are always, always in pursuit of us. And thank you for today, for what today means, what it commemorates. Jesus' triumphant entry into that week that would eventually lead to his death, that would lead to our own justification. Thank you for your mercy, God. And so God, today, even as we prepare to study your word, we are praying that you will please teach us, open our hearts, meet us where we are. For those of us that need encouraging, Father, please encourage us. If we need rebuke, Lord, please do rebuke us gently. <laughs> you know how to rebuke us. You know how to get to us. But most of all, God, I am praying that wherever we may be, that you will meet us at that very point and remind us of your love. So please, God, come teach us. Let, let, let it be your words that is heard, not mine. Let me get out of the way and let all of this be your words. And if I were to say anything that is wrong, Lord, I am praying that you will please just Change that in the hearts of your people and in my heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 90. Uh, we'll read the entire psalm, but before I get into that, I just wanted to give a, a little bit of an overview. Um, so I guess a couple weeks ago, maybe, maybe say, from maybe two or three weeks, uh, there's been this weariness that I've just been feeling. Right? It's not really a physical tiredness, but more of a mental thing. Right? And um. It comes from me looking at the brevity of our days, of our lives, right? It comes from me looking at the toil we go through. Uh, it comes from just that gap between expectations and reality that Nick spoke about a couple of weeks ago, right? And I've just come to realize that nothing here is enough, right? No matter what it is I achieve, get to, there's just always something else. And even if I get there, I already know it's not going to be enough. Right, and so it's almost like what the the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, right? Vanity upon vanity, all is vanity. And so the point of not being enough, when I look at it, I think it stems from just the fallenness and the brokenness all around us. And when I say that, what do I mean? Right, so I think back to the Ethiopian airline crash, just everybody there died. Right, I'm thinking about the senseless killings that comes from wars, from just areas where there are conflict. Just unimaginable things from human trafficking 
Now, to, to take it from the general to come to the specific, going back to what Ian spoke about, right? I'm thinking of the manipulation tendencies within me, right? The selfishness, the habitual sin, right? And just wrestling with that and saying, when does all of this end? What is ever enough, right? And, and so I come to this place where I see that I'm not just a victim of sin. I also inflict others with my own sin. Right. So it's this idea of being both victims and victimizers. And it's this. And then comes this cry from my heart that who would deliver me from this body of death? Right. And it's in this place of thinking about this that I believe God blessed me with Psalm 90. It's not really a fun psalm that I like to read. But for some reason, I was drawn to that psalm and I just couldn't get away from it. So we will be studying Psalm 90 today by the grace of God. Um, so let me read the text and then we'll jump into it. So Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever had you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight, about as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before us, before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is both toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants. And your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the works of our hands. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes. Establish the work of our hands. So let me give you a brief context and then we jump into the text itself. So this psalm is ascribed to Moses. Right. The, the man of God. Um. And you would recall that Moses starts off his years by living 40 years in Egypt as a prince. Pretty sweet deal, right? But he's wrestling with his identity, right? He's wrestling with who he is, right? And Hebrews 11:24 says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses kills a man, right? Flees Egypt and spends the next 40 years in Midian, right, being a shepherd. Now imagine going from a prince, you have everything, and then you go to a shepherd, and you're herding like sheep. Once you had a great purpose and vision and what you would be, 
now just reshoot. <laughs> right? They can't even talk back to you. But th- this 40 years are what you might term the quiet years in Moses' life, right? Uh, this is kind of like the organic years. Nick spoke about how the kingdom of God is organic, right? So these are the years where it seems like nothing is going on, but there's actually a lot God is doing in Moses' heart, right? And eventually God calls Moses back to go to Egypt, right, to deliver his people. And through that process, Moses will learn dependence on God and you. Why? Because of the Israelites, right? They would test his patience, right? He would plead with God for God to not destroy them at least twice, right? All the rebellion, the insults, he he would have to learn to depend on God through that process, right? However, Moses sins against God when he broke faith with God, right? You can see this in Numbers 21 to 13. And God declares that Moses will not see the promised land, right? So what I want you to do as we get into the psalm is to imagine that you're with Moses, Right, and he's up on top of the mountain Pisgah. This is where Moses will die. Right, this is his final ascent. Right now, before going up the mountain, he has sort of commissioned uh, Joshua to be his successor. He had prayed over Israel, warned them, sort of given them like the the word of God. Right, and just sort of warning them of what is to come. But what I want you to see is to sort of reflect with Moses. Right, and I assume the psalm was sort of written at that time. I don't know exactly when it was written, but there's a reason I'm saying this. I want you to see through the eyes of Moses as he goes through this psalm. A couple of things I want you to remember about Moses. Moses is a man that saw at least a generation get wiped out. Right, so we know there were at least six hundred thousand men that came out of Egypt. Right, and every one of them died, apart from Joshua and Caleb. Right now. When you look at maybe their wives and their kids, it could be maybe 1.5 million people, right? But, but imagine a man that has seen that much death, funerals, right? So I want you to have that at the back of your mind so that we can let Moses disciple us with his words today. And so this is also a man that has seen the highest highs, right? A man that speaks to God face to face, but also the lowest lows. The one that God will tell you will not see that promised land that you have labored for for the past 40 years. You are actually not going to see it. Right. So, so let, let Moses's word today, let, let it be a, let it be an encouragement to us. I want you to listen, to sort of sit with him. Right. As a man that is looking death in the face and sort of giving us this hymn, this psalm, right, as an encouragement. So when I spoke earlier about how life can be troublesome. Right, and tiring. You see, we can either take this idealistic approach, which is kind of naive, which is, oh, you just need to make certain decisions and make the right decisions and you always get to the end. Right, you get to the right end. Or we can take the cynical approach, which lacks integrity and is just full of bitterness. What Moses, however, will paint is a brutal reality, which is both encouraging but sobering, right, even as we go through the psalm. So we will organize our thoughts, uh, the study into four sections, which is in the handout. Uh, So let's dive into it. Before we dive into it, well, I I hope everyone can see this. I guess there's no way to move where I wouldn't block anyone, but (laughs) hopefully you can see it from some angle. So before we dive into that, I want to talk about the main point. So the main point is that this psalm 
The, the main point of Psalm 90 is not the hymn praising the eternity of, of Yahweh, not the contemplation of the shortness of human life, but the prayer for the eternal God not to overlook the short life of mankind and let it pass away in misfortune, but to have mercy upon his congregation, which consists of such short-lived people. Right. The brevity of life. So translation, <laughs> the point of Psalm 90 is to point us to God as our only hope, our only anchor, and our helper. There is no other. Right? There are no other anchors save the eternal God. None could ever suffice. So I want you to hold on to that main point as we walk through the four sections so that that helps in just uh, making more sense of the material. So let's get into the first one. God the eternal. Verse 1 and 2. Lord, let me read verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. There is a certain uncertainty that characterizes life. Right? If you look at everything we strive for, what we are after, right? It is always to get to this point where there is security, where you are comfortable, where you don't have to strive for more. Right? So it could be a financial security. Uh, is a sense of financial security. It could be some form of fulfillment, some form of acceptance. Right? And so we have those goals and those things we want to get to and those achievements, right? But the point is we want security. We want to know that everything will be okay. And so even when we draft our purpose statements, what is usually hidden underneath that is our insecurities and our longing for that security. Our longing for the fact that everything will be okay. Again, I want you to go back to Moses, right? So, first 40 years, a prince in Egypt, very comfortable, everything is sweet, right? Next 40 years is in Midian, in some wilderness, herding sheep and all of that. But at least he has a family, right? He has home, he has community. Now, at this time, he's 80 years old, 80 years old, right? This is the time for Moses to relax, you know, play with his grandchildren, have some family traditions, Right? And at this very time, God calls him to lead about a million, you know, 1.5 million people, right, on a journey that would take 40 years, right? I think initially it was supposed to take 40 days, but 40 years. Part of what you will realize is that for the next 40 years, Moses will have no permanent mailing address. There would be no place that Moses could call home. Right, there would always be that wandering, that movement as the cloud of glory lifted from the tent and they moved, right? So through the uncertainties, the wandering, the rebellion of the people, I mean just the unimaginable stress that Moses would have to go through. Moses is saying, I have never been homeless. Right? That's why he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Right? In all generations. He's saying, I have never been homeless. So even when the road before him is not clear, Moses understands that he is safe. Why? Because you see, the thirst for security, what we all run after, the, the thirst to know that we are secure, it is always satisfied by communion with God. Right? That is the only place where you can truly feel secure. Why? Because God is the ultimate place of security. Moses points to this in Deuteronomy 34 verse 26 where he says, The eternal God is your dwelling place. 
and underneath had the everlasting arms, his everlasting arms. So the question I would ask with you today is, do you see God as home? Because the point of home is really security, right? It's really a place you can be safe, a refuge. So the question is, do you see God as your home, as this place of security? One clear implication from everything that Moses is saying here is that God is never detached or disengaged from you, right? God doesn't sort of sit down on his majestic throne, kind of very detached and looking at you struggle in your mess. No, God is right there in it. Why? This is why he would send the son and give him the name Emmanuel. God is with us. Right? So one of the things I want you to realize is the greatest gift that God ever gives is himself. Always. This is the gift that makes you secure. This is the gift that can make you rested and know that you have a place, a home, and there are no uncertainties and you are not shifting with sand. So when faced with disappointment, slander, unfulfilled longings, weariness, do you see God as your dwelling place? Do you entrust your public relations department into God's hands? I don't. If someone says something about you and you just want to go at them. It's like, how dare you say that? Right? But, but we must, over time, come to this place where we are trusting in Him. Now, for God to be that place of security, right? That place you can always trust, you can always know that He has you, He has your back. See, God cannot be vulnerable to the passage of time. Because or else, why would he be a place of security? Right? You have you want to know that he can truly handle all things. Hence what Moses says in verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever had you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, verse 2 reassures us of the refuge that God is by pointing us to the immemorial majesty of God. Right. You see, verse two actually merges both the historical and the transcendent, uh, 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 the historical and the transcendent realms of God. So, for the historical piece, we can change. Thank you. For the oh no, sorry, go back. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, verse two actually reassures us of the refuge that God is by pointing to His immemorial majesty. The verses merges the historical and the transcendent realms of God. For the historical realm. Look at verse 2 again. It says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever had you formed the earth and the world. The statement points to the creative power of God. It is to remind you of the omnipotence of God. The second part of that psalm says, second part of that verse says, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. This leaves no room for debate. From eternity past, through the present, to eternity future, Our dwelling place is God. And so I want you to think about that. Because for me, a lot of times when I read that verse or I read statements like, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It just sort of passes through my mind. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I know that. But think about that. From everlasting, eternity past, through eternity future, he is God. And he is with you. And he is for you. This is what gives security. Right? This is what keeps your heart at rest, regardless of the vicissitudes of life, right? The ups and the downs, the chaos, 
right? The longings, the issues we face. I love how one commentary describes it here. Right? And that was actually the, the slide. It says, um, these verses, verse 1 and 2, they begin with the time reference in which human life is set, right, throughout all generations. And that's verse 1 that says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And then they end with the eternal sweep of the life of God. From everlasting to everlasting. That's verse 2, which says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever had you from the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. This is what I want you to catch there. Within the panorama of time and eternity, we have a fixed address. He has provided himself to be our dwelling place. United with God, we enjoy permanence. This is the point of verse 1 and 2, to remind us that God is that security. God is that safe place. God is that refuge. For all you have ever faced, what you are facing, what is to come, you can never be beyond the arm and the sight of God. It is impossible. So let this be soothing to your soul. Right? Let, let this be calming to your soul. And we are going to need discomfort as we go along in the psalm. Right? Because the immemorial majesty of God, it has both disturbing and comforting implications. Which is what we are going to study. So Moses starts off this way to anchor us into God. Right? Because what Moses is about to paint, what we are about to get into, is actually quite brutal. Right? It's like this brutal reality that we are about to face. And... You know, even when you look beyond the psalm, we know it from our experiences. We know it when we lose loved ones. Right. So let's jump into the next section. So let me quickly read verse 3 to 6. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Like like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. And in the evening it fades and is withers. So verse 1 and 2 in a sense is there to serve as a comparison. right? A comparison to what Moses is about to get into. right? And it it starts with verse 3 which pivots on that first phrase there. Which is you. Which refers to God. right? You, God, return man to dust and say return O children of man. That is sovereign. Like I said, I my birthday was yesterday, so I had to think about this. Oh my God, I'm getting older. <laughs> um, see, but for all of our exploits, and all that we strive after, and all that we run after, we seem to forget that we are furnished with a time fuse that is running down. Right? Eventually, that fuse will burn out. With each passing day, we do draw closer to the end. Right? Save for Christ coming back again, we will all face death at some point. And to even drive home the point, we don't even get to choose when that time fuse runs out. Right? God bears the divine responsibility for the death of mankind. No matter how we want to see it. God is ultimately responsible. He bears that divine responsibility. See, Moses then emphasizes emphasizes the difference between God and us (laughs) with verse 4, when he says, For a thousand years in your sight, but as yesterday 
when it is past or as a watch in the night. A watch in the night actually represents three hours. Right? So what is he saying? A thousand years of our life, it's like a day. A thousand years, just like three hours. It, it, it's kind of painful that life can be so puny. <laughs> right? A thousand years, three hours. Right? And now, Moses probably mentions a thousand years in reference to the oldest man who ever lived. Right? So who's the oldest man who ever lived? I thought you were going to say Jerry. I was about to fight with you if you said Jerry. <laughs> I got you, Jerry. I got you. So yes, Methuselah, right? You see that in Genesis chapter 5, right? Um, so Methuselah lived about 969 years. And it seems like Moses is saying, even if you live that long, three hours a day before God, right? Now, this sets our brief existence into proper context, which is God. God is the proper context of our lives. And this should humble us. Right? Having this proper context should curb our pride, our greed, how we wield power and privilege. Right? Like it should halt any sense of moral superiority or self-righteousness we might have. And quite frankly, it should make us more reflective and dependent on God. Now, a comforting thought here, though, is that the brevity of our lives are set against the eternality of God comforts us. It should comfort us as regard to God's plan, his intervention, and their timings as expressed in Second Peter 3, 8 to 9. Let me quickly read that. But do not overlook this one fact. This is Peter speaking. Beloved, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. For the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So yes, we do have a brief life, and before God, a thousand years is like three hours, but it should also be comforting, right, to show us the extent of God's patience, that when we struggle with sin, when we want to run away from God, God still running after us, right, calling all of us, to repentance. So Moses continues to emphasize the mortality of man by saying, You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and it withers. It's funny that Moses compares the transience of grass in an arid climate to human life. Now, again, maybe this is because he has witnessed at least 600,000 funerals. And then after a while, it just seems like, wait, my body was just here. He's gone. Or she's gone. Right. The point Moses is making here is that since grass is notoriously transient, especially in the arid climate, just like me and you, our existence is fleeting, ephemeral. Momentary. And all this brutal realism is to truly make us embrace things as they are, to see our need for God. See, Moses presses our impermanence upon us so that we can trust in God. It's also quite ironic that, you know, given, it's quite ironic that given the fundamental nature of death or mortality, we live in an age where we actually don't think about death. Now, maybe that's because of medical advancement, which makes sense. 
right? But it, it's almost like we try to avoid it. But, but part of what Moses is driving here is for us to contemplate it, right? To contemplate the brevity of life because it gives wisdom. Let me quickly run through three things. One, he gives us a better perspective. It helps us reprioritize, right? If I were to ask you the question, if you know you're going to die tomorrow, what would you do today, right? More likely than not, whatever plans you have for today is going to change, right? So mortality, the contemplating mortality has a way of reprioritizing our uh, helping us to reprioritize. So it gives us wisdom. Now, it also makes us feel and experience the relevance of God's promises to us. Right? It's sometimes we, when we read things in scriptures, we just feel distant from it, erroneously, but we do. Right? We just feel like that's not me. Right? Part of this is we live life like we are making deposits into the savings account that we will later draw upon. Right, so I'm going to school so I can get a great job, right? Getting married so I can have kids, right? And life will go great, right? So we live life as if we're climbing this ladder, right? As if we, we are looking towards this point where I make enough money and then I can chill and just enjoy the rest of life, right? That's how we live life, right? But this is what we're forgetting. We're forgetting that we have a time fuse. It will burn up, right? So rather than us saving, it's almost like we're spending down our lives. Right? Because every day that passes, we do draw closer to death at some point. You see, when we realize this truth of life, we are more apt to connect to the promises of God. And when you realize the brevity of life, you are more willing to embrace what Christ has done for you. Right? So it, let me give you an example. In First Peter 1, 3 to 4, if I were to read this without contemplating death, it would just pass over my head. Right? So it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. If I'm not contemplating that, that just passes through my mind. I'm like, yeah, 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 that's great. But when I am contemplating mortality, it it has a different feel to it. Right? And again, understanding the brevity of life helps us to truly be in solidarity to people we might know that are terminally ill, that are facing the end, right? Because we, we tend to live life as if we are not going to die, right? And so a lot of times when people are terminally ill, there is this loneliness that is around them, right? Because while they are contemplating death, you are contemplating your birthday, what your kids are going to do next, all of that, which is normal and great, right? But contemplating death can help us connect. It can be an opportunity for the church to truly remind those that are around us that death is but a doorway. And if they do not know Christ, to share the gospel with them. For, for this particular point in contemplating death, the allegorical work of C.S. Lewis has actually been very helpful for me. Uh, the Great Divide, right? Again, it's an allegory, but it's been very helpful for me to just think through things. But, but anyways, to, to move on, you know, sometimes we say death is an unfortunate conclusion of life, a misfortune, so to say. And there is truth to that, right? There, there is truth to this. See, on the other hand, we must recall that the divine responsibility for death belongs to God. See, these words in verse 3 to 6 may remind you of another phrase, which is from Genesis, 
Where God says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Who made this statement? God. What was the occasion? Adam and Eve's disobedience. And so we might then ask the question, though, why is life so comparatively brief? Right? Why is life so comparatively, comparatively brief when compared to God? And Moses will answer this in the next section, where he deals with the problem of sin and the wrath of God. Right? So let me read from verse 7 to 11. See, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins and the light of your presence. For all of our days pass away under your wrath, and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So what we cannot miss here is that sin lies at the core of the brevity of life. There is just no other way, right? It starts with the fall of man in the garden of Eden, right? Where death becomes our sentence because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Why, though? Why? And the reason is that sin is immensely offensive to a holy God. Let's go to verse 7 again. The first part says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. Right? We are brought to an end by your anger. Brought to an end here means we are consumed, spent as if there is nothing left. By your wrath we are dismayed. Dismayed here paints an army facing overwhelming disaster. See, both are images of death and with no escape. And notice that they are the result of God's anger and his wrath. Let, let me read that again. It says, For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. Now I know this is heavy, right? But one thing I must say here though is that God is loving, and I will get to that. Right? I will get to that, I promise. Right? So God is loving, infinitely so. He is love. God doesn't have love. God is love. One of the mistakes we make is that we, we because we say God is love, we, we look at love or our definition of love, and then we try to define God. Right? But it's actually the other way around. You look at God, and then you understand what love is. Right? But as much as God is loving, God is also holy. And righteous, right? And I know Christian spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. And God is light in whom there is no darkness. Like the darkness cannot exist. And, and so the wrath of God is actually consistent with his character because he is holy. Right? You, you might say in response to what? In response to verse 8. You have said our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. You see, while verse 7 shows that we have no respite when faced with the judgment of God, see, verse 8 takes away all excuse. Right? Like, we just can't come to God and give any excuse. I say, well, God, you can't be angry with me. Right? And the sad result 
of sin and the brevity of life is in verse 9. So for all of our days pass away under your wrath. And we bring our years to an end like his high. It's just very anticlimactic. All of our days pass away. The, the term that is used for pass away there is, is looking at a day that reaches a zenith when the sun right, is at the zenith and then it just passes away. Right? And, and then the sigh at the end of that verse even emphasizes almost like the emptiness of life at the end of it when you face life, when you face death, right? Moses goes on to highlight the average lifespan of man. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. See, not only is life short, it is spent in toil. And for all of our 10, 20 year plan and every other plan we make, life is soon gone. Please make plans. I'm not saying don't make plans. (laughs) Please make plans. It is wise to make plans. I'm sure you can feel the weariness of Moses. Right? And this is why I said I want you to almost sit with him as if he's on top of the mountain, Pisgah, right? facing his own death, knowing that he would die on this very mountain. Right? Why? Because Moses has seen about 600,000 deaths. Right? Now, Moses, the brevity of our life, right, it seems to mock the toil we endure. If life is going to be so short, why does it have to be so hard? Right? So it seems like the brevity of our life mocks that toil we endure. And then why? Why must life be short and so filled with toil and weariness? And verse 11 speaks to this. When Moses says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you. A question to ask is, do we consider the anger of God at sin? I don't, honestly. It's very rare for me to consider the anger of God at my sins. But the truth about it is that if we ever do consider it, it is quite humbling. Like we, 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 we have no clue of the wrath of God. And what Moses is observing here is that sin is denial. There is a delusion to sin. And I love that quote that is up there. Um, sorry, yeah, this quote that is up here. It says, part of the nature of sin is that we hardly ever realize the relationship between death and sin. And the reason is that we are always living for the moment. We never think or we are never thinking about the last things, the final things, the permanent things. In a sense, the bite of God is worse than his back. Right? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. So we must be careful to not let familiarity with the things of God breed contempt. Especially when considering sin. So one question I've had to wrestle with is, how often do I excuse my own sins and make light of the anger of God at sin? When Moses says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you, the idea is, who can begin to grasp the wrath of God? No one. Right? No one. And the latter part that reads, and your wrath according to the fear of you, literally it reads, Like your fear, your fury. Translation. If we had any sense of things, 
the extent of our fear of God will be commensurate to the extent to which God is angry with us. That's what that phrase is talking about. Like your fear, your fury. The sin has so compromised us that we have no capacity. We do not have the capacity to begin to understand or comprehend the offensiveness of our sin to God. This is part of the delusion of sin, the denial of sin. So we are unable to rightly discern the extent of God's outrage against sin. So while we might see death as an unjust strategy, and it is, it is. On the other hand, it is far more intention than consequential. Why? The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. What Moses is doing here is he's tracing back our human mortality to its root. Right? Back in Genesis 2 to 3, right? Where God declared himself in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for. And the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And Obviously, we ate of it. So what Moses is painting here is a universal condition of man. Right? And I want us to be careful here, right? So what he's painting of our sinfulness and the resulting death applies to humanity as a whole. Please, do not look at someone that passed away and point to a sin in their life. and say, this is why they passed away. No, not at all. Moses is not talking about that. He's painting a universal condition. Right? on the brevity of mankind, right? We are not judges, and so we must never draw that connection, right? And so from the moment that Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we all became infected, right? And at the same time, none of us can really stand before God and say, God, I am sinless, I do not deserve death. Like, none. Like, we we have no leg to stand upon. See, this is a hard truth, right? It's very difficult to process. Right? But it is truth, nonetheless. And here's where I'm going. Unless we accept this truth, we can never truly appreciate the work of Christ on the cross. Unless we come to understand the reality of this truth, the reality of the problem of sin and the wrath of God, what Christ did on that cross, we, we can't truly appreciate it or understand what it is. So if you're like me, sometimes when I'm facing issues and things are not just going well, I generally have this urge to go to God. I say, God, but why? Like, I go to church. I serve. I mean, I try not to insult anyone. I do sometimes. <laughs> right? But I live a good life. Like, why am I going through all of this? It's almost like I'm almost trying to say, God, give me what is fair. Beloved, you absolutely do not want what is fair before God. I absolutely not. Right? None of us want what is fair before God. Because there will be nothing left of us. Like absolutely nothing. Right? And so Moses doesn't want us to hide from this reality. Because no matter how brutal and sobering this reality is, right, we are forced to look beyond ourselves for help. Because we understand that we cannot make this work. It goes back to what I said at the beginning. I am not enough. You are not enough. Together, we are not even close to being enough. And so what Moses is doing is he's laying down this groundwork that will point us to our help. 
It's our hope and our helper. So in light of the judgment of in light of the judgment our sins deserve, right? We are altogether helpless before God. But we are not hopeless. So while it is true that God is angry, Moses also understands though that God is compassionate. And God is gracious. As God revealed to him in Exodus 34, 6, when God revealed himself and sort of passed before Moses and declared this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So in light of God's indignation against sin, what do we do? Moses starts with verse 12 where he says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We obviously know how to count our days. We have the calendar. We can count our days. So what Moses is really saying here is, show us how to live. Like, give me a heart. Teach me how to cope with the brevity of life in a way that glorifies you. Show me how to make the most of my days so that my life counts for something more than what is here. So here's a practical application for us. When we pray, let us pray for this wisdom. Let it be almost a normal part of our conversation with God. That God, teach me how to live. Show me who you would be if you stand in my shoes. Like if you grew up the way I grew up and you have all those experiences, Jesus, how would you live your life? Like show me that. So let us ask for this wisdom. Now armed with this wisdom, Moses appeals to the graciousness of God when he says, Return, O Lord, in verse 13. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servant. Moses is literally calling God to repent. He's like saying, please turn away. Right? Sort of echoing back to when he would converse with God about not destroying the children of Israel. And saying, return, repent, turn away from this path. Right? It's important that even though Moses is seeking the mercy of God, he has nothing to give. It's not like Moses is saying, you know, return or repent from this path, God. And I promise you we are going to do right. He has nothing to trade for. He is simply appealing to the mercy and the grace of Christ. Right? He's simply appealing to that nature of God. And this must always be our posture when we stand before God. And appeal to the mercy of God. And so I must ask this question. What is your posture when you talk to God about your sins? How how much is true repentance and contrition a part of your journey with God? Does your heart feel the weight of your sin and your unholiness before God? So Moses, knowing the nature of God, knowing that he has a relationship with God, Moses understands that God is still his anchor. Regardless of the sin, the brevity of life, all the issues, God is still his anchor. Right? And God is our anchor if we will come to him. Hence Moses says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. And then he says in verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. When I look at verse 15, I'm like, Moses, why would you pray that God should make us glad for as many days as he has afflicted us? I'm like, pray that we will be glad forever. Like, why is it equal? Like, why are you saying make us glad for as many days? Like, no. Why, Moses? Like, ask for more. (laughs) Right? But maybe this comes from his broken heart and the contriteness of his heart. Right? The posture of humility. 
that he has. And he's basically saying, God, please just make us glad. Like I know we don't deserve much, but make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. So maybe that shows us humility, right? It's just a heart of pleading with God. Now Moses, knowing that we will still sin and turn away from God, even when God repents and forgives us, he, he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Right. The, the point here is Moses is saying, help us harness wisdom, the wisdom he prayed for earlier, to number our days so that we can pass it on to the next generation. Right. This is a call for God not to abandon us, to keep convicting us, to keep drawing us nearer unto him and to draw the next generation unto himself as well. So Moses caps off the psalm, we're about to end, caps off the psalm by referencing the title of God as the sovereign king in verse 17 when he says, Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the works of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the works of our hands upon us. I love how one preacher expounded on this prayer in verse 17 and I think we have it. Yes, we have it there. So let me quickly read that. Verse 17, this is not a prayer to leave to see the incredible manifestations of success. That is a young man's prayer. Right? That's when a young man who doesn't understand, what a young man doesn't understand is that we don't possess the capacity to measure success rightly. Right? I might think that success means I become a CEO or do this or I have this much money or I accomplish this and this and that. But we honestly do not possess the capacity to measure success rightly. Not in this life. We are fallen. We do not have the perspective of omniscience. But this is a prayer. This is a prayer that the work we do in God's name will have lasting value. Enduring value. Eternal value. So whether you are a CEO or you are a stay-at-home mom, this is a prayer and everything in between. Right, stay at home mom is actually a great job. Right, thank you. <laughs> and everything in between, right, it can have eternal value. Right, when we submit all of that to God. This is the prayer. So can you hear in all of this how dependent on God Moses is? Can you see like this wise and sage on top of that mountain, facing death with everything he has seen? His anchor is still God. He is still dependent on God. At the end of the day, Moses is not saying, God, look, I led these people for 40 years. They almost killed me. Like I talked to you face to face. Like what else do you want from me? Right? But he is depending on God. There is that dependence on God. He knows that there is simply no hope, no help, but God. There is simply nothing else. You see, in this life, on this earth, there are no permanent foundations. There is nothing you will build that will last forever. Nothing. Save the work of God, there is nothing. All we have here is just expensive tent pegs. They are all temporary. Everything. And so a practical application for you is that, is this the orientation of your life? Is this how you look at life? Is this the outlook you take? So let the brevity of life and the reality of our sins, let it drive you into the hands of the one who is gracious and compassionate. So we're at the end of the psalm. You might ask the question, so Moses prayed this prayer. How does God respond? 
What is the response of God to all of this? Right. So in light of the problem of sin and the wrath of God, what is our lasting hope? How God responds is that about 2,000 years ago, there was a man, Christ. He would enter into a city, the triumphant city, right? Today, right? And as Jesus rode on that donkey into Jerusalem, right, today, which is called Palm Sunday, as he rode on that donkey into Jerusalem and the people began to pay homage to him and they spread their cloaks on the road and the multitudes were praising God and they were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna means save us, right, literally. And over time, he morphs into this idea of salvation has come, right? But literally, it means save us. Like, save, please, save us, right? Now, what the people saw was they saw Jesus as their hope, right? The hope that would save them from the rule of Rome. What they did not understand was that Jesus was coming for another kingdom, right? The kingdom beneath the kingdom, the kingdom of sin. And so while they were cheering for him and they wanted him to seize that throne, Jesus would, through voluntary suffering and death, sit upon his rightful throne, permanently bridging the gap. Between humans and God. So again, I will ask the question, how does God respond to the prayer of Moses, to the problem of sin and his wrath? God responds by pouring out his fury on his own son for our sake. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. How does God respond to Moses? When Moses makes that request in verse 15, the request I talked about, when he says, make us glad for as many days as we have seen affliction. And I'm like, Moses, why why would you say that? Come on, man. Like, ask for more. This is how God responds. 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Uh, Let me quickly read something that John Piper says about this because I think it's beautiful. This is about our afflictions and our struggles and our suffering and the loss, the unfulfilled longings. John Piper says this, not only is your affliction momentary, Not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature, excuse me, from the fallen nature of fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit just because of time. He says this, when your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you have cancer at 40, when a cat careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't think it's meaningless. It's not. Somehow, God will work it out for an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take this truth day by day, focus on them, preach them to yourself every morning, Head alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings it with confidence that you are loved and cared for. Again, when I ask the question, how does God respond to Moses? Prayer. Romans 8, 31 to 38 sort of summarizes this and then we'll finish. So let me quickly read this. Romans 8, 31. 
When then shall we, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how does God respond to the problem of sin and the wrath of God? He responds by giving his son to die for us. He responds by showing us that even though sin is offensively, is shockingly offensive, sorry, to Christ, to him, right? He would willingly give himself, give his son to reconcile us back to him. This is how God responds, to show you his love for you. Let us pray. Father, thank you. For even though we face this brutal reality of the brevity of life and the toll that we face therein, thank you for your love. Thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves. Even though what we deserve is judgment, you sent your son to die in our stead. See, he was given up for our trespasses and then raised up for our justification. And so we are not only saved from the penalty of sin, we are saved from the power of sin. And eventually we will be saved from the presence of sin when we are fully glorified with you. And so God, my prayer is this, that we will hold on to you rather that you will hold on to us. That we will not turn away from you. And if there is anyone here that doesn't know you, God, that their hearts will be open to accept your love. To rest in you. To see that your sacrifice on the cross is for them. It is meaningful. To see that this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, even though you were weeping over Jerusalem and they were rejoicing, even though they didn't understand like we don't understand, that you love us. That you care for us. So help us God. To accept your love for us. In Jesus name. Amen.